as we come to this chapter, what I want us to see is that promises matter. Promises matter. We should never promise something lightly. And yet, how often do we do that? As far as the timeline goes, uh, we've pretty much come to the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, The last four chapters, they're not something that's just stuck on at the end, but the last four chapters aren't carrying on with the story. The the last four chapters are are a summary and a wrapping up of the book, but they're not in chronological order. For example, um, David's final words come in the middle of this section. But the authors seem to to put them into this account, and there's a really clear structure to them. I ain't got time to go all the way into it, but the middle two chapters, chapter 22 and 23, contain a song of praise by David and final words by David. Either side of those final words and that song is a description of mighty men that fought for David. And either side of that, in chapter 21 and chapter 24, we're told in chapter 21, our Saul, and then chapter 24, our David, had brought judgment on the land because of something they'd done. And then chapter 21 and chapter 24 end with the exact same words, the Lord heard the prayers of David for the land. So this is not just something that's chucked on as a supplement. This is a, a, a summary of things that happen in David's life, a, a summing up of David's life, and it forms a unit all on its own. And the first section, the last section is like this as well, but the first section begins with a problem that's come about as a result of a promise being broken. Now, we don't know when, this, when the events in this passage happened. It's probably somewhere between 2 Samuel 9, where David makes a promise to Mephibosheth, and 2 Samuel 15, where he goes on the run from Absalom. So it's somewhere in the years between where David says to Mephibosheth, I'll protect you, and then when David has to go on the run. But we're going to look at three things, and the first thing is that promises really do matter. Promises really do matter. We can't just make promises glibly. If you notice, the chapter begins, there was a famine in the days of, in the days of David that lasted for three years. Uh, famines are bad news today, aren't they? They were disastrous back in the Old Testament. There wasn't a global economy. They couldn't have grain shipped in or flown in from another continent. You were reliant on this year's harvest. And if this year's harvest failed, you were in massive trouble. In the event that somehow you managed to survive this year's failure of harvest, you wouldn't survive a second year. And if you managed to survive a second year, you wouldn't survive a third year. This was really, really serious. A three-year famine. See the pictures on the news, don't you, of regions in Africa where there's a shortage of food and you see the little kids that are malnourished and the skinny and the the, the skin and bones and it breaks your heart. And that's with the Red Cross. And that's with charities pouring aid in and bringing wheat in and taking medicine in. But imagine if you had none of that, it'd be devastating. And David says to the Lord, Lord, why is this happening? David doesn't just think that this is some kind of natural phenomenon, natural disaster. David perceives this as more than just a famine. And the Lord answers David. He says, the famine's because Saul and his family have got blood guilt over the Gibeonites. Now, we'll come to the the Gibeonites in a minute, but are we comfortable with that? 
God causes a famine on the whole country because of the sin of Saul and his family. Something Saul and his family did years ago has caused a famine. I think that happens even now, you know. I'm not suggesting every natural disaster is God punishing specific people. But part of God's judgment on sin is that he curses the earth. Particularly as we read the Old Testament, there's this link between sin and judgment and the land. We look at the covenant that God makes with his people and it talks about as a result of breaking that covenant that the land is cursed. And so it raises the question, we'll say, well, who are these Gibeonites and what on earth had Saul done to them to make God so angry? This is something you, 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 I'd be amazed if you remember, but we look way back when we looked at Joshua in Joshua chapter 9. In Joshua's time as leader, they were going through Canaan and they were conquering the land and God were giving them the land and they were fighting lots of battles and they were winning lots of battles and the Gibeons were inhabitants of Canaan. And they noticed what was happening. They noticed that God was with the people of Israel. And so rather than the other nations that were being disinherited, they didn't want to fight. They wanted to align themselves with God's people. It were a good desire. The way they did it were a little bit sneaky. They, they put their oldest clothes on and they, they made out there were, there were refugees and they asked for Israel's protection and they said, if you protect us, we'll serve you. And Joshua and the leaders agreed to protect them, make a covenant with them, and then they realized that they actually belong to the land of Canaan, but it's too late, they've already sworn a covenant to protect them. And in fairness to the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites were faithful. They lived amongst the Israelites, they, they, were, they were faithful people, they feared God. Some of them were part of David's mighty men. Some of them later on helped Nehemiah rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites were a blessing to Israel. Now when you make a covenant, when you made a covenant, the actual phrase was that you cut a covenant. You might remember in Genesis 15 when God makes that covenant with Abraham. When you make a covenant, what you do, you take some animals and you cut the animals in half and you place them on either side of the aisle. And then you both walk through the corridor. And what you were saying is that if, you, if I break this agreement, if I break this covenant, let's what's happened to these animals happen to me. See, a covenant promise was a really serious promise. God who's a God of covenants that he never breaks promises made before God in God's name really do matter but we know Saul were a loose cannon wasn't he? Saul did things his own way and at some point during his reign probably towards the end we don't know but he saw fit to ethnically cleanse Israel of the Gibeonites if he knew about the covenant but he slaughtered loads of these people that Joshua had sworn God's protection to and the Lord says to David years later, this is why there's a famine. Years have passed. Why is there a famine now? Saul's long dead, 20 years, 30 years dead. Why is there a famine now? Well, there's a famine because it reminds us God hates injustice. A promise has been made in God's name and broken. And God hates that. And years pass, but God doesn't forget. We need to be aware of that, you know. People make promises and they spiritualize them and call on the name of the Lord in them or whatever. 
and or use God's name as a witness when they're making promises and then they break those promises and time goes by and they might forget and we might forget but God doesn't forget people don't get away with making promises before God these, these weren't promises necessarily made to God they were made to people but using God's name this were a covenant made by the leader of a nation, Joshua, and broken by the leader of a nation, Saul. Now, the mercy is this, that, that, that God's not like a husband or a wife who goes quiet with you. And when you say, what's wrong? They say, oh, nothing. David says to the Lord, Lord, what's wrong? And the Lord tells him what's wrong. He don't keep him guessing. That's, that's the mercy that, that when we come to the Lord, he'll show us what's wrong so we can put it right. So David approaches the Gibeonites. He asks them a massive question. He says, how can I put this right? The, the, the question's actually more than that. The question is, with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? This is serious because that word atonement is a massive word in the Bible, isn't it? It's the problem that you and me have, that sin isn't just that we've done something wrong. Sin's that we've sinned against a person. We've sinned against a God who's holy and just and when we sin, our sin's got to be paid for. We'll come back to that in a minute, thinking about atonement. But let's carry on with the story so we don't lose the thread. The Gibeonites say in verse 4, we don't want money. You know, this is not about money. We're not after compo. We don't want you to kill any Israelites on our behalf, but we do want justice. Notice as well that the Gibeonites didn't pursue this. God pursued it. I think that's an encouragement. God raised their injustice. That's a great lesson, isn't it? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. But what they do do, what, what the Gibeon, uh, Gibeonites do, is the, the, the request shows they do want justice and they are serious. And it's quite shocking. They say to David, take seven of Saul's descendants and hang them in Gibeah. Gibeah was where Saul lived when he was king. Take seven of them and kill them. And David's response is, okay, I'll, I'll give them over. But notice something else. David's not like Saul. This all came about because Saul broke a promise. David keeps promises. David had made a covenant with Jonathan 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that he'd protect his children. And so we read that David spared Mephibosheth, but he did send the other seven sons of Saul to be killed. And we're told they're all hung on the first day of the harvest. It's a bit like, you know when we watch the news sometimes and then something else comes on, it takes our attention away and we, we forget the horror of what we've just seen. Well, here's seven sons of Saul on the first day of the harvest and they're hung out and killed. How does that make you feel? Because if somebody approached me now and said, you need to apologize, Ben, or you need to be punished for something that George Wicks did as a pastor a hundred years ago. I'd say, no, no, I don't. I'm sorry if that happened, but it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't even born. If something happened in the church 50 years ago, I might apologize on behalf of the church, but not personally, because it wasn't me. Should we apologize for things like the slave trade? Well, well we, sh we should be say well, it shouldn't have happened, but I can't personally apologize because it wasn't me. I can't apologize for something that I haven't done. I shouldn't pay for something that I haven't done. 
And, and we think, well, does that cause us a problem here? Uh, uh, are, they, are they just lashing out at Saul's family because Saul's dead, so they're taking it out on Saul, on his family? Well, first of all, what Saul did, he did as king. When a king does something or a prime minister does something, it implicates the whole government. The Ukraine, they're not just at war with Putin, they're, they're at war with Russia. God hates injustice. He is within his rights to punish all sinners. But there is a simpler answer to what's going on. At the beginning of the passage, we read that it was Saul's bloodthirsty house that killed the Gibeonites. See, it wasn't just Saul who killed the Gibeonites. It was people from his house. The suggestion is that Saul's family were complicit in killing the Gibeonites. And this didn't happen 200 years ago. It, it probably happened within 10, 15, 20 years. Saul might have been an old man when it happened, and he might, have been, he might be dead now, but his sons went to war with him. We know that Jonathan defied him when it came to doing ungodly things, but, but obviously the others didn't. It's a bit like saying, you know, we can't go after Hitler because he's dead, but there's still other Nazi war criminals who we can bring to justice who were a part of it and who were alive. See, promises matter. God does not forget his promises that he makes. He doesn't forget promises that are made in his name. And that should comfort us and it, it should challenge us. God doesn't let injustice slide. He keeps his promises. And just like David, so must we. If we tell someone we're going to do something, we should do it. Especially if, we're, if it's a spiritual thing that we're invoking the Lord's honoring. Second thing is this, that while promises are really serious, dealing with sin is really messy. Verse 3 is crucial. Why can't David just make a generous donation to the Gibeonite Foundation for Science and Art? Why can't he just give him some land or, or a title? And the answer is because they want justice. In fact, what's needed, we're told, is atonement, not compensation. Our sin can't be dealt with by us paying God some kind of compensation. Well, that's what people want, isn't it? That's how lots of people try and deal with sin. Well, we try and live a good life. We try and pay God back for the, the, the bad that we've done by doing good things. But we're not told that the Bible never says sin should be compensated for. Sin should be atoned for. Blood for blood is the only way to deal with sin. All the way through the Bible, it's blood for blood. It is gory. The Bible is. The Bible's not bloodthirsty, but it is bloody. Numbers 35, 33. Blood defiles the land. No atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that's shed on it, except the blood of him who shed it. It, it makes us cringe, but this is how God deals with sin, blood for blood. Dealing with sin it is really, really messy. And the image here in 2 Samuel 21 is... It's gruesome and it's actually quite disgusting. And that's the point. The results of sin are disgusting. And we've got to stop sanitizing the results of sin. A simple sorry won't cut it. Sin's got to be paid for. Saul and his family have slaughtered Gibeonites under God's protection. And now seven of his family have got to be slaughtered. They've got to be hung out on the first day of the barley harvest. And that's what happens. And that could be the end of the story. You know, that these people have sinned and God brings justice. That their sins are atoned for by blood for blood. Justice has been served, but there's more for us to see. And I think this is, well, it is deliberate. 
We see the mess and the devastation that sin brings. We read about a lady called Rizpah. Now, in the grand scheme of things, Rizpah's got nothing to do with the storyline of the Bible. You know, there's no reason, no theological reason for it to be included in this passage. Except this, that she was one of Saul's concubines and the mother of two of the men that were executed. And what we get to, to do here, we get to see a pain and see a heartache. And it's deliberate. We're told she guards the bodies that are hanging. She stops the animals from getting at them. She stops the birds from eating them. And we read she does it until the late rain comes. Now these bodies are hanging. And this woman, Rizpah, is guarding them from around end of April, early May, when the barley harvest begins, until the late rains come, which was September. April to September. Can you feel how much grief she must have had to do that. Every day she's there, warding the birds off. But the second thing that comes to mind, can you imagine the stink? Atonement's messy. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wearing a a cross if you wear one. Don't take it off. But they're nice and they're polished, aren't they? They're sanitized. And so often, that's how we think of, of sin. We, we sanitize it. But in the Old Testament, atonement was filthy. Atonement was stinky. Have you ever smelled an abattoir? They absolutely stink, don't they? And on the Day of Atonement in Israel, there'd be this procession of just lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb all day long brought before the priest, and he'd just slit the throat and move on to the next one, slit its throat and move on to the next one, slit its throat and move on to the next one. And they'd lay their hand on the, the head of the lamb to symbolize they were becoming the substitute, they were becoming a, the atoning sacrifice for the sin. And then it was just blood and guts, and it was blood running everywhere, and it stunk. And it's, it's, it, does that make you squirm? It, that's the point. It should make us squirm. It is disgusting. And it were a reminder to anybody watching, not only does blood have to be shed for, for sin to be paid for, atonement is disgusting, atonement is filthy, atonement is stinky. Atonement is gory because sin is ugly. So how do we apply that? Do we say, yeah, but God draws alongside the rispers of this world. Well, he does. But I don't think that's the point of Rizpah being in this story. I think the point of Rizpah being in this story is very human. I think it's just to remind us that sin is sad. One writer says, sometimes we just need to look and be sad. Sometimes we need to look at the results of sin as we read the Bible and just be sad about it. And that's the application, just be sad. We we should look at sin, we should look at the things that flow from sin and just be sad. We should stop what we're doing and be sad over sin. And as we know people who've the sin that they've fallen into and what it's led to, we should be sad about it. And we should mourn the sin that we see in our own lives. We should mourn the sin we see in other people's lives. It's appropriate just to be sad. And David is about it. And David can't fix this. We can't do anything about the consequences of somebody else's sin. 
But David does what he can for Rizpah and, and even for Saul. He arranges for the bones of Saul and Jonathan to be retrieved. And he takes the bodies of the seven men down and he gives them a dignified burial. And it's, after the, it's, not after the, the just, it's not after justice has served. It's after the grace of burying these men that the Lord hears David's prayer and sends rain. And again, just, just stop a second. Four to five months of searing heat and no rain. Imagine being the bloke who had to take the bodies down. It makes you cringe. But we must cringe. Because sin and its results are disgusting and messy. Third and final thing I want us to see from this passage is that God's faithful. We might not like what we read here, but we can't say that God's not faithful and just. The pleasant bits of the Bible and the uglier bits of the Bible both show that God's faithful. Because God will ensure that when someone makes a promise in his name, that promise is either honored or it's paid in full. And if you're not a Christian, that's terrifying. Because if you're not a Christian, it means one day you're going to begin atoning for your sins because God's faithful. And it'll be horrific and it'll last for all eternity. But it also means this, that if you, if you love Jesus, if you've asked Jesus to be your saviour, then we're comforted because he keeps all his promises. It's good that God keeps his promises, good and scary. It just depends which side of the cross you're on. It all depends how, how is our sin going to be atoned for. And as we remember God's faithfulness, we have to remember as well, that God's promised atonement for the sin of everyone who trusts in Jesus. Everyone who asks Jesus for mercy, their sin is already atoned for. Have we done that? If we're in Christ, he's atoned for our sin once and for all. And we don't have to pay, but I think we do have to look. We don't have to pay for our sin, but I think we do have to look. And I think we do have to be sad, and I think we do have to be grateful. Because as we say, the, ato the atonement was disgusting. And the ultimate atonement, I mean, we're talking about animals in the Old Testament and stuff. That's disgusting. The ultimate atonement was disgusting. The ultimate atonement, it wants some bronzed Adonis with piercing blue eyes, stoically going to the cross with a stiff upper lip and a nice English accent. The real atonement was the spotless, beautiful, but human son of God being stripped naked in front of a crowd and shaking with fear and having his flesh torn from his back and his, his beard pulled out and being beaten up to an absolute pulp and when probably messing himself and probably wetting himself because that's what happened after the flogging and the jolting of the cross. They, they said people lost the use of the, the, their internal organs. They couldn't control the bodily functions. And it's disgusting when we don't want to think about it and say, Ben, I wish you wouldn't say things like that. Jesus messing himself, that's disgusting. That's the point. It is disgusting. And we've got to allow the thought of atonement for sins to disgust us. We've got to understand the blood and the gore and the stench and the humiliation that our sin caused a, a holy God 
and that our sin and our filth was meted out on Jesus. And then we worship and then we rejoice and then we hate our sin. But we must be sad before we can be glad. We've got to let the sadness of passages like this uh, sink in and then we rejoice that our sin's paid for. We rejoice because we know that we deserve what these seven blokes deserve. And we rejoice that after this, just like God heeded the prayer of David in verse 14, he did that because he was satisfied. And in, in the same way, the Father heeded the prayer of Jesus from the cross when he said, Father, forgive him, because he was satisfied. This passage teaches us God is faithful and God is just. And just because justice is gruesome, because the Bible is bloody, don't let that, that put us off because it shows us that God's faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises to us. We can have absolute confidence God is faithful to keep his promises to us. But he's also faithful to the promise that he made in Eden that he'd crush sin by wounding his son. And I want to be faithful, and I'm sure you want to be faithful. We want to be covenant keepers. We don't want to be like David, like Saul. We want to be like David. But ultimately, we can't be. David ultimately couldn't be. David's a hero here. But the next time, when, when, the, when this section closes, he's the villain. He's the one that's brought the, the famine. David's sins need atoning for. And so, so let us be promise keepers. Let us be people who don't make promises lightly. But let, let's remember that Jesus has atoned for our sin in our place. And God's curse has been removed from us only because Jesus has atoned for it. Jesus has kept his promise. Promises really do matter. Sin really is messy. But God really is faithful. We're going to sing as we close. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's stand if we're able to and sing.
Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his blood can cleanse every stain of sin and we are absolutely pure and clean in him. But Father, we hate the sin that that put him on the cross. We're humbled by the fact that he had to be utterly humiliated so that we can be forgiven. So help us to be sad. But we thank you we don't stay there. We thank you that ultimately we rejoice that we are right with you through Jesus and through the atonement that he made. Lord, help us to be promise keepers. Help us to be sincere and honest with people and not do people over. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Amen.